Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. And today we are going to be speaking about a topic that may be near and dear to you. That topic is gestational diabetes. Today we have another dietitian here with us, which is quite interesting, I would say, Joanne, because a lot of the times our guests are not other dietitians, don't you think? Right, that is true. So I'm going to hand it over to Joanne so she can get into the nitty gritty and not keep you guys waiting on what we have planned for you today. Yes, let's do that. We are quite excited to have you here, Casey, because I'm in my fifth pregnancy. I'm in my my third trimester. So gestational diabetes, thank God I don't have it. It's a topic that pregnant people always worry about. So before we even get started deep into the questions, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, why we feel like you are an expert in this field. So the people are not like, who is she? What's she know? <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat with y'all. So I am, yep, Casey Seiden. I am, like Kim said, a registered dietitian. I'm also a certified diabetes care and education specialist, formerly the, the CDE, diabetes educator. I have been a dietitian for almost five years and have primarily worked my whole career in the diabetes space. For the first few years, I worked mostly with prediabetes and type two, but about two years ago, I made this transition to work more specifically in the gestational diabetes space. I am in New York City and I work at a high-risk OB clinic where a lot of our moms are quote unquote high risk, meaning they have some kind of condition or complication in their pregnancy that means they need a little extra care and monitoring. And one of those is gestational diabetes. So it was also a very new type of diabetes to me prior to starting at that position, but I've really just hit the ground running and have learned so much from my patients and reading research So I really come to love working in pregnancy and this type of diabetes. So that's my, that's my day job. And then I also own my own private practice where I will see women for various women's health related issues, diabetes, pregnancy, and postpartum related things as well. Interesting. That's awesome. I mean, that area is an area I feel like, you know, when you're pregnant, you already got all kinds of stressors coming at you, you're overwhelmed, especially if it's your first pregnancy. So having somebody who knows exactly what it is when it comes to gestational diabetes, how, what Mm -hmm. they can do, how they can prevent it and all that, I think it's very much needed. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into some definitions. What exactly is gestational diabetes and how does one diagnose it? Yeah. So gestational diabetes is a specific kind of diabetes that is first uncovered in pregnancy. So it doesn't mean that you had prediabetes or type two diabetes either that you knew about, or that maybe you even didn't know about prior to getting pregnancy. This is really assuming that the person has had no glucose conditions, you know, no signs of those preexisting types. This is only diagnosed in pregnancy usually around 26 to 28 weeks. And why it's not diagnosed earlier is because around this time period, as you enter the third trimester, is when certain hormones that the placenta is making starts to make mom very insulin resistant. And she becomes 
carbohydrate intolerant, essentially. Not, you see, I didn't even know that. I honestly did not <laughs> even know that because of course, gestational diabetes, you know, isn't my thing. I'm pretty sure Joanne, like this is your fifth pregnancy. So I'm pretty sure that you've been through this, but yeah, that's interesting though. That's very interesting. Do you happen to know the name of the hormones? I'm just curious, you know, we're, we're nerds here. We're RDs. Yeah, there's, I mean, there are a few, there's like different uh, insulin-like growth hormone, and then there's like placental lactogen, or I'm going to totally butcher those names, but those, those are two of them for sure that increase. And it's basically causing, you know, the glucose to stay in mom's blood and then her body, her pancreas is trying to make more insulin to overcome these raising hormones from the placenta, but it just, it's like the pancreas can't keep up. It can't make enough insulin to address this high blood sugar. So is there a time period where like you said, after 26 weeks, you said that's usually, yep. That's why we do the diagnostic test, which I know we'll talk about around that 26, 28 week time. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards you can't do it. So it's like 26 to 28 weeks or 26 to 30 weeks or something like that. Right. I mean, some people will miss the mark, you know, for whatever reason. I remember when I was pregnant during COVID, like some people just couldn't get into the doctor to do it at that time. So they maybe did it at 30 weeks or if they see, you know, the baby on growth scans, if the baby's growth is looking really large, then maybe they would have some suspicion like, Hmm, maybe the mom's blood sugar is actually elevated. Let's either, you know, let's test her again or have her monitor her blood sugars at home. Maybe, but it usually, you know, we want to try to catch it at that 26, 28 week time. And then once we know, we know. Yeah. And you, you answered my question. Cause I was going to ask, you know, if it leads to a larger fetus and you answered it. So I guess I'm assuming it's because all of the extra sugar circulating in the blood, the baby's feeding off of it, the baby baby's growing kind of ordeal. Exactly. As opposed to where type two diabetes, right? The body has those mechanisms to like help them urinate out the glucose, but with the fetus, the sugar can just pass across the placenta to the baby. Their pancreas senses it and starts to turn mom sugar into little cushy body fat. Yeah. You usually see those big babies are bigger, like 10 pound babies. Could be. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. See guys, this is why Casey does gestational I do type 2 and pre-diabetes because gestation is not my thing. It's not. A whole other can of worms. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the diagnosis process because this is my fifth, third trimester pregnancy. I say it like that because I've had other pregnancies that didn't make it because I had a couple of miscarriages in my past. But with my 10-year-old, when I had my glucose testing then, it was a stick. It was thicker than syrup. I don't know, like Cairo syrup, maybe. That's how thick I felt it was. And it was orange. And you had to like drink that thing. You had to drink it down and then wait an hour and then they test you or whatnot. And over the years, I feel like I've had um, better versions. There's ones that tasted like a flat Fanta orange soda. There's some that has tasted like straight water. Like the one that I had this time was not even orange. It said orange flavored, but it was clear like water. And it tasted like it could have been carbonated, but it's not so much carbonated like a flat soda. So I've had it all. And I know 
there's reasons or whatever that practices choose what they choose. I don't know. But I want you to go into the differences first of the one hour versus the three hour. Why are they chosen? Do they do the three hour first ever or do they start with the one hour? Let's go into that a little bit. Yeah. So what we're talking about here, this lovely drink um, is fondly called the glucola. So basically what it is, it's a solution of glucose and it's supposed to assess how your body responds to a load of glucose. So you're right. I mean, I think it's a lot driven through concerns from moms and kind of consumer demand over the past few years that this, the actual solution, the glucola has gone through some iterations. They've taken out the dyes so that you will find it more clear versus the actual orange colored or red colored drink anymore. Because let's face it, it is like a pretty chemicalized drink that you're drinking there. It has to be standardized. It's something that's available. It has to be the exact same solution all across the country. So a lot of women, you know, don't feel super comfortable putting something like that in their body and to their baby. So I think they've been trying to make improvements and changes to it over the years. Um, It is what it is right now. It is the one formal standardized way of diagnosing gestational diabetes that we have in this country. I had the lemon lime and it was the clear one. I didn't think it tasted all that bad, but that was me personally. I have plenty of patients and clients who they can't tolerate the glucose if they're still dealing with nausea at that point in their pregnancy, or if they had a history of like bariatric surgery, they just can't tolerate that sugar load all at once. So people have pretty, can have pretty traumatic experiences doing this screening test, but it's what we have. You might see online on blogs, Things like doing the jelly beans or simply eating a meal or drinking apple juice or something like that. And they're just not standardized. You know, jelly beans can come all sorts of brands and weights. And so you can't just count out on a food scale 50 grams of jelly beans and expect them to be the same as the glucose drink. So, you know, the one alternative, and this is something you'd want to speak with your own provider about, you know, something that we offer at my practice is. If you can't make it through the glucola or you're opposed to it, is doing at-home glucose monitoring with a glucometer for two weeks, you know, without changing your diet to assess, okay, what's your baseline glucose control? So, and then the doctor has to use their clinical judgment to say if you are suspected of having gestational diabetes or not. So it's more of a process and a little bit less cut and dry, but can still be a useful quote unquote diagnostic tool. So, so that's, you know, that's kind of what the method is. And in our country, we diagnose women based on what's called a two-step diagnosis procedure. So First, women will come in and do a one-hour glucose. That's where they will, you don't have to be fasting. You'll come in, you'll drink a 50-gram glucola, and then they'll check your blood an hour later. If it's above a certain threshold on that screener test, because we call it a screener, that one hour is not you know, a diagnostic test. It's just a screening. If you're above a certain level, you'll move on to step two, which is to come fasting. You'll have your blood drawn fasting. They'll give you a 100 gram glucose drink. So double what you took at first. And then they'll check your blood at one, two, and three hours. And you would get a positive diagnosis if two of those four four values were elevated. 
kind of a long-winded way of doing it. Other countries do a one-step where they use a 75-gram drink and they just check fasting one and two hours. That can sometimes tend to overdiagnose, according to the literature. So that increased medical costs, stress on women. You know, there's lots of implications for doing it that method. You may think you're skipping out on one of the drinks. You know, there's pros and cons to both methods, I think. But here in the U.S., we mostly except for I think in California, use the two-step. Is it better if you're fasting? I don't think they've ever told me to fast, but I remember this last time I was rushing to the doctor's office. I hadn't eaten breakfast and I was like, let me just have a piece of my sandwich or something like that. And I just figured, I was like, well, I'm going to be sitting around for an hour. I'm just going to go back to my car and I'll finish off my breakfast. But they were like, they never told me not to fast prior to drinking the glue cola. Right. For the one hour test, yeah, you don't need to be fasting. I wouldn't recommend eating like probably 30 to 60 minutes beforehand. But if you have like your breakfast two hours before or something, you should be fine and it shouldn't interfere with the glucose results. No, I had it right before I did. But what they did tell me is that I couldn't eat after I drank the glucola. I was like, man, I can't finish my breakfast. I had to wait until they drew my blood. Um, But everything turned out well on my blood, um, which is a good thing for me because I ate and I had their little uh, glucose concentration. You can can really process sugar and food very, very well then. Well, and it's interesting. People have even told me, and I didn't think about this, you know, you're supposed to drink the drink and just go sit down. But a lot of people with COVID, if you go to a lab or you do it in your OB's office, you can't stay in the lab because they're so teeny tiny. So people have to go and like walk around on the street here in New York or something. And I've now been so curious. I had to do the same thing. You know, if that influences the results at all, I don't know. Right. I would, I would assume that it does. And you have to drink it. I don't know if that's standard, but I had to drink this one um, within five minutes. Interesting. Wow. All these things I'm learning. Wow. I can't imagine drinking 50 grams of just glucose, but maybe I'll get there one day. I'll get there one day. No, it's not. It's not that bad anymore. It's not bad at all now. Like I said, I didn't think it was terrible, but, and I don't even drink sugary things on the regular. 10 years ago was this, it wasn't bad at all. It's something that you can We'll, we'll see. We'll see. I, I don't have a tolerance to, to sweet stuff. Like I'm more like a savory person, but I'm looking forward to the flat soda. I am. So I wanted to ask you, Casey, because, you know, as you were talking about the glucose tolerance test and the three hour test for individuals that may be a little higher than the mark. So if someone is diagnosed by their doctor with gestational diabetes, is there anything that they can do uh, during their pregnancy or even before their pregnancy to try to help control their blood sugar levels and reduce this risk? So risk factors for gestational diabetes are a lot of them not quite in our control. We look at things, things that put someone at risk are going to be their age so guidelines say anyone over age 25, which is probably most of people getting pregnant. I typically see it more over, you know, my 30 plus age group or especially 35 plus is at a higher risk. Race and ethnicity, family history is a p- pretty big risk factor. If you yourself have polycystic ovarian syndrome, women getting pregnant through IVF, potentially a higher risk factor. So a lot of these things we can't really control, 
One of them is BMI. And, you know, for, for what it's worth, BMI is may or may not be the best indicator of one's diet or health, but that's a potentially quote unquote modifiable risk factor. So my best advice is usually, you know, and just by fact of having a placenta, right? Because this is so hormonally driven. Gestational diabetes can happen to absolutely anyone. Even if you don't check any of those risk factor boxes, it can just happen. So my best advice to kind of potentially decrease your risk is going into pregnancy you know, in a good spot with your diet, you know, eating in a balanced way, which I think we'll talk about because it's going to be very similar for how we're going to treat gestational diabetes in pregnancy, eating a balanced way, being active, you know, doing your exercise, living a healthy lifestyle is kind of one possible way to decrease that risk. Good to know. Cause I think, you know, these are things that especially seeing that people have been on lockdown. These are things that really need to be focused on, diet, lifestyle, stress, even sleep, because, you know, stress really impacts sleep cycles that can impact blood sugars as well. So I'm very happy that you brought those out. Even though there's some factors that we can't control, there's still some things within our grasp that we can control. So that, I think that's important. So does gestational diabetes put you at risk for any other diseases? Sure. Yeah. So in pregnancy, gestational diabetes can possibly put you at a higher risk for like preeclampsia, which is kind of a form of high blood pressure in pregnancy. And that can become pretty severe. There's not all that much treatment for preeclampsia. It's basically, we're going to deliver your baby if you end up becoming preeclamptic. And it's, and gestational diabetes then doesn't lead to too many other diseases, but it can have other implications or complications for the mom, for the baby. I can talk about those if you're interested in that too. Oh yeah. I mean, I definitely had um, a question in regards to that because over the years being in the health field and even prior, you know, when I was younger, I've had people in my family who had gestational diabetes. And I remember them being told that the risk factors for baby increases as well for diabetes. If their mother had gestational diabetes while they were in the womb. So is that true? Is that still true? Yeah. So let's break it down talking about the outcomes and risks for, for baby and then, and then for mom. So, you know, and all of this is being said that the more, the better controlled, the more at goal someone's blood sugars are in pregnancies, the more that these risks go down significantly. So I think that's really important. You know, we're talking about women who are maybe having persistently elevated blood sugars are going to look at these risks happening a bit more, but for baby. So in pregnancy, right, it's kind of a stressful environment in the womb there with the high glucose. So their pancreas is getting a little stressed. Um, it puts them kind of on edge, I like to say. So what can, one of the first things that we could see happen to baby is once the baby is delivered and the cord is cut from baby to mom, no more sugar is being transferred to the baby, but their pancreas is still producing lots and lots of insulin because it thinks that there's more sugar coming in. So they could actually have really low blood sugars upon delivery, which could mean they might need to go to the NICU to, you know, be monitored and have their blood sugars safely brought up to a safe level. So that's something pretty scary that, you know, a new mom dealing with this could see. And then, yeah, thinking forward to their future, you know, because we're doing a little bit of like fetal programming here, their pancreas has kind of 
understood what it's like to be in a stressful, higher sugar environment. So there is some research showing that babies born to moms with gestational diabetes are at a higher risk for diabetes, maybe as an adolescent or as a young adult. And so that's kind of, those are what we look at for the baby. When we talk about mom, then again, this is if blood sugars are persistently elevated for a while and they're not being treated, we could have a risk of a preterm birth. So baby being delivered before their expected due date, again, baby growing too large. And so then if we think about a vaginal delivery, it's possible that those big broad shoulders could kind of get stuck in a burnout. And we think of maybe more tearing, more bleeding for mom, which is never a fun thing, or it just gets really complicated. And and like I said, stressful at delivery, stressful for baby, stressful for mom might lead lead to a C-section even. So those are kind of the big risks for for mom and baby. Yes. I listen, that fear of a big baby. I recently did um, went to the doctor and the baby is four pounds, six ounces, and I still have 10 weeks to go. Okay. I I have not had this before and I don't have gestational diabetes. I have nothing going on. Thank God. But I'm like this baby. I can only imagine having to push out a 10 pound baby. I don't want it. I don't want it. And that's like some, that's why we can't always make, you know, when I'm looking at a patient, we look at their, the baby's growth scans and we look at their blood sugars side by side because some people just have genetically very large babies, but their blood sugars could be totally fine. Right. Right. But I, you know, all my previous kids, they were the biggest anyone was was seven pounds, four ounces. So this would be new to me. And as you said, I can only imagine broad shoulders, big head. Oh my gosh. I can't, I'm not ready. Maybe it's the girl, Joanne. Maybe it's the girl. Let's hoping for the girl. <laughs> Maybe. Joanne only has boys. That's the difference. You're a strong mama. You can handle anything. Yeah. So this, this is the girl keeping our fingers crossed, but this is so informative, Casey. Like I have to say, I never really thought, cause of course, you know, I'm not a mom. I'm not pregnant. I'm thinking like, am I going to be interested in speaking about gestational diabetes? But like, you're opening up a whole new world that, yeah, I, I read about it during school, but I'm just like, what? three-hour glucose test, black soda. Oh my gosh, these hormones. And I'm, I'm just like, wow, this is amazing information. So I'm going to ask the question that I think the audience has on their mind. I know you, we mentioned it earlier and you also made an allusion to it that we're going to get into it. So let's talk about diet and lifestyle. Uh, let's give the audience some hope. So if someone is diagnosed with gestational diabetes, how can they take the bull by the horns and make some changes to control it? Yes, absolutely. And I love that you said give some hope because I think so many women can feel incredibly hopeless when they get this diagnosis. They think they just have to cut out absolutely everything. And they might even be told that by a a well-meaning doctor, but, you know, part of my job as the dietitian diabetes educator is to help them find the flexibility. And so what we said, remember, was that gestational diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance. So it doesn't mean that you can't have any carbohydrates, 
but we're going to work to really modify the portion sizes of carbohydrates at your meals and snacks, really emphasizing more of these complex, high fiber types of carbohydrates that are going to break down more slowly and spike blood sugars less dramatically in your body. So that's kind of the big premise, but what, so we can eat carbohydrates, it's, it's modifying those things, but then also looking at what other foods are on the plate. So, you know, thinking of the opportunity to add lots of vegetables to your plate making sure that you're adding lots and lots of protein and healthy fats because those nutrients are not going to spike blood sugars. So whenever someone is going to have a source of carbohydrate, I'm always saying we got to give it a buddy. We need to eat that carbohydrate with some protein, with some fat. So, you know, cheese, peanut butter, eggs, meat, those are like a pregnant mama with DDM's best friend because we, you know, I'm constantly talking about how we can add those to the meals to balance out your blood sugars a little bit better. So let me ask you this. What about fruits at breakfast for individuals with gestational diabetes? Is that a yay or an A? Good question. Yeah. I mean, breakfast can notoriously be a very tough meal to contain lots of carbohydrates because the body is usually a lot more insulin resistant in the morning. So a lot of my moms will find a more protein fat forward breakfast to work better for their blood sugars, somewhere eggs, avocado, Greek yogurt, and things like that. But there still is room for potentially a little bit of fruit or a slice of whole grain bread. It just might not be a lot. And that's going to really depend person to person, how their body's going to tolerate that first thing in the morning. Gotcha. And the reason why I ask that is because uh, maybe this was, this was before I became a CDE, CDCES, the new credentialing word thingy there. But I remember there was an OB nurse and there was someone that had gestational diabetes and for breakfast, you know, she wanted, you know, something more high fat, high protein. And the kitchen put like a orange garnish on there. Like it wasn't even like the whole orange. It was just like a thin little sliver. And this nurse called me and she was like trying to take me to town. And I'm like, hold up, pump the brakes. Number one, I'm not your child. Uh, number two, there are absolutely no carbs on this tray and fruit is allowed. I don't know where. So she was thinking that this mom had to be on like a keto diet. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I'm just like, okay, is your problem with the fruit or is your problem with carbohydrates? So I'm glad that you said, you know, even though in the mornings, the body may be a little more insulin resistant there is room for carbs. So guys, if you need to rewind this and play. What's even important is like keeping carbs consistent throughout your day. What happens is like, if someone can go like keto, keto, mm-hmm. keto all day long, have no carbs. And then by the end of the day, all they want is a big load of pasta. <laughs> what do you think that's doing for your blood sugars? Right. Right. Especially with the cravings. Right? Because Joanna, I'd be seeing you on Instagram with the cravings. The cravings? Girl, (laughs) it's the truth. It's the truth. And I know some people who I've heard, I don't know them personally, but I've heard, I see on social media where people are like, they've been told to go on a diet and lose weight while they're pregnant. With With, pregnancy? pregnancy? Yeah. I'm not going to say it's common, but it's been done. And sometimes it's because they have gestational diabetes or the quote unquote BMI saying that they're supposedly obese or whatever it is, and they have them going on diet. So if you put gestational diabetes, which is overwhelming 
by itself. And then now you're trying to put somebody on a diet for weight loss. I mean, it's, I feel like it's always a recipe for disaster when they're making all these requests without sending the person to see any professional dietitian. I agree. Yeah. I so agree, Joanne. Yeah. I will see a lot of women when they get this diagnosis, you know, they may lose some weight for a lot of them. It's more of a a happy consequence of improving their diet. Were we intentionally pursuing weight loss? Absolutely not. Are they starving and hungry and hangry all the time? You know, no, because we're making sure that she's still eating enough calories, enough protein, enough fat, but we've just modified her carbs and her sugar intake to get better blood sugar results. So it's like, it can happen, but we're never going to pursue it intentionally in pregnancy. But I've heard it several times. It's crazy that some physicians put that out there. Very unfair to tell a pregnant woman to not gain weight. It's just, it's very, yeah, it's very unfair. Or even I've heard somebody say, you know, they told me I can only gain 10 pounds or I can only gain 15 pounds. Because there is a category uh, that they have of if you're this weight prior to pregnancy, this is the amount of weight you can. And it's crazy because as someone who's categorized as being normal weight prior to pregnancy, I always go over what they tell me to. I'm already at 40 pounds right now if you want to count. <laughs> so I'm like, it doesn't make any sense because everyone, everyone's body, I feel like, is different. So telling my body to gain 30 pounds, no more than 30 pounds, I think they tell me. And I'm somebody who does 25 miles a, a, a week. I eat well and I still gain the 40 to 50 pounds. So think about, you know, what if somebody who is who doesn't know anything about health and wellness, nutrition and all that, they're going to feel horrible. They're going to feel like they are failing at this pregnancy because they're not staying within those numbers, you know. So with that being said, is there anything else that we missed, Casey, that you feel like people should know? No, I mean, I think we're ending it on a really great note, which is hopefully providing a lot of comfort to your listeners that just, you know, there's a lot about pregnancy. There's a lot about gestational diabetes that is not in our control, whether it's hormones or genetics or what have you, but you know, yeah, let's focus on making some small tweaks, small changes to maybe improve your diet and, you know, keep taking the best care of yourself as you can. And as Kim said, get your sleep, try not to stress and, you know, everything, everything will be all right. True. True. You know, one thing I, I started doing, to be honest with you, um, and this is for the listener out there, I have honestly stopped watching the news. Because like every minute, oh, you know, there's this new strain coming out and we're entering into flu season and so forth and so on. And those things are stressful. Like for me, a non-pregnant person, I can only imagine how that impacts individuals that are pregnant and may have gestational diabetes. So this is just something I personally do for my mental, physical, spiritual wellness. So I encourage others to find what makes them tick. Or, you know, make them go over the edge and just take yourself away from it. Unplug for a little bit. Absolutely. This is a very stressful time for pregnant people. I'm going to tell you that. Casey, where can people find you if someone's like, oh, I want her to help me? So I'm mostly um, over on Instagrams. My handle there is eat well together. And there's a period between each one. There's eat.well.together. Um, you can also head to my website, which is caseysidenutrition.com. Okay, cool. So with that being said, everyone, 
If you have been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, you've heard it here from Casey, the expert, there is hope, okay? Make sure you request to speak with a dietitian who is experienced in this area and don't just let them say, give you a sheet of paper and, you know, go home and what is that they do? So until next time, everyone, thank you, Casey, for being here. Make sure you share, like, and pass this episode on to somebody else who you think will benefit from it. And we'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Adios.